I'm fully vaccinated, folks. You're vaccinated if you haven't been. We could take a second. I need to go see my cut man. Cut me, Mick! <laughs> this video is being recorded. Is this okay? He, he really did recommend it. <laughs> I did. I did. Do you remember when the Snake Eyes film's coming out? Uh, too soon for them to start it all over. You're quite right. You're quite right. You're quite right. Ah, right. Right. I thought we were doing something different. I mean, I assume it's better than King Kong lives. Well, a lot of movies are. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max, and today we will be discussing our first fairly uh, new movie f film in the theaters, Godzilla vs. Kong, directed by Adam Wingard, with the writers Terry Rosa uh, Rossio, Zach Shields, Michael Doherty. Those are the story by credits. Screenplay by Eric Pearson and Max Borenstein. And you would think with a Max in the writing Writing column, it might be a uh, it might be a good sign. Don't 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 get hopeful, audience. Starring Alexander Skarsgård, the Chris Hemsworth of Skarsgårds, Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Madison Russell. Sorry, Skarsgård plays a guy named Nathan Lind. Rebecca Hall as Eileen Andrews. Brian Tyree Henry as Bernie Hayes, a podcaster hero. Shun Oguri, who plays Rin Serizawa. Eliza Gonzalez, who plays Maya Simonson uh, Simons. Julian Denizinson as Josh Valentine. Lance Reddick as Gillerman. Lance Reddick was in the John Wick films. He's the Sharon. He stands behind the counter. Kyle Chandler in his third King Kong film plays Dr. Mark Russell. Oh, sidebar. Kyle Chandler played Bruce Baxter in Peter Jackson's 2005 interpretation of King Kong. So we did the sidebar. Demian Bashir, who plays Walt Simons, and Kylie Hottle, who plays Gia. This film had a budget of 200 million, and it set a pandemic record for its for its opening night. Sorry, for its opening. I'm sorry, opening weekend. It made like 122 million or something. But its worldwide gross so far is 427 million, 575,216 dollars. This film was begun really quite quickly after the success of Godzilla: King of the Monsters. A writers' convention apparently was convened to come up with the the story. So they got a lot of writers in the room to to make the, the to make the film happen. Jason, you got anything to add? You mentioned that. You mentioned the the team of writers uh, that come together and they brainstorm all these ideas. That's kind of been the story for all these films. It has been, yeah. I mean, it seems to be that they just kind of bring people in and they start throwing spaghetti noodles on the, at the wall and see what'll stick. And then, and of course, we have a new director, um, as you pointed out, Adam Wingard. We do have a, a, a different vision. We've now had four separate directors for the films. I, I do know that after the meeting with all of the writers, that Michael Doherty and Zach Shields, who wrote the previous film, came in to kind of make sure that all of the character development was consistent. And um, go on, sorry, uh, sorry. The character de development consistency was a was a was a good line that Jason just. <laughs> Especially with my air quotes. But actually, I, I want to linger on that for a moment. Uh, because one of the things that occurred to me while watching this movie, you've seen Apollo 13. Yes. Yes. And I hopefully many of our listeners have, have seen it. If you haven't, uh, not only should you uh, not watch this film, you should shut off this podcast and watch Apollo 13. There's a scene in Apollo 13 where the astronauts are, are, are running out of oxygen because there's too much carbon dioxide in the capsule. And they have to figure out how to connect the filters between the 
the two vessels. And so they get all of these engineers together in a room and, and they throw all of this equipment on the table and they say, so we've got to make this and they hold up a, 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 a filter fit with this with another filter using nothing but that. I think that's how this movie was written. They had a bunch of, uh, of index cards that had things like hollow earth, titans, apex, uh, uh, alpha, uh, uh, you know, a, a alpha creature. And they just had all these things on, on, on uh, little index cards and they had them on a table and they brought these writers in and they said, well, legendary's given this one, uh, given this one to us and we got to come through. We got to make this and they hold up a, a, a figure of Godzilla fit with this holding up a figure of King Kong using nothing but that pointing to the index cards. Get to work. Yeah. And guys then went down and they they picked up the index cards and they took all these concepts that had that, that are, are are all through the previous three movies and they kind of had to take all those concepts and figure out, okay, how do we take all these concepts and these characters, make this movie and somehow get, come up with a reason for Godzilla and King Kong fight. Go. And that's that's the production of this movie. Well, I think you're, you're probably absolutely right. And and one of the things that I was looking at, because I was it was kind of marveling at the size of the of just the, the credited writers, the, 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 the number of credited writers. And so I started clicking on the, their names, uh, their hyperlinks in IMDb. And some of them are associated with quite good movies. Mm -hmm. uh, oh. Several of them, of course, are Godzilla of MonsterVerse alum. But, you know, uh, I think Michael Doherty is uh, wrote is one of the writers on X2, which is one yes. of the best X-Men ever. Um, yes. And, uh, and and there, there there are little credits like that in all of the CVs of the writers. Um, but the thing, I I think that your analogy is great. I think it's perfect. But also, what a great scene that is when 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 uh, Ed Harris throws the stuff on the table and says, this is what you got to work with from Apollo 13. Now, by necessity, those engineers had to work with that material to save the astronauts. There was no reason on Earth at all why the writers who were given Given this impossible task of linking this weird ad lib, Mad Libs, sorry, Mad Libs, this weird Mad Libs together, when you can get around almost any writing problem with uh, a few lines of clever dialogue. Oh, well, we were wrong about this. Oh, that was a, you, you, you can write in whatever you want to erase some point of continuity in the past movies. In, in fact, it's even easier with these films because <clears throat> the audience doesn't care. We just want to see the monster fights. That's right. Yes. Right? So, so, I'm sure you're right about this. Hey, we've got to try and make this all fit. But they didn't have to make this all fit. You know, uh, they could have, uh, you know, they could have just, just, you know, it, it is a cheat to to get a, away with it by, by a little dialogue. Oh, well, we invented X or King Kong walked through a time warp or we misestimated uh, the size of Kong in the last film. It doesn't matter what you do. You can write anything, a couple lines, get around your, 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 the problem that your previous creators have caused you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they should have like... They should have called up some comic book writers and said, hey, what do you do when the previous team of writers on the comic book you were working on did something and you, you're you the new writer on the book and you want to do something else? How do you get around that? Oh, A, you could do it the DC way, pretend it didn't exist. Um, right. Or B, you could retcon a little bit, which is the, I think maybe the 
the the Marvel way, which is re- retroactive continuity is what I'm talking about there. I'm sure you guys, listeners, know that. But they just didn't need to put themselves in, in they didn't need to write themselves into the hole that this film tries to write out of. Well, I, but let me give you a suggestion. Um, you know, the other writer, I think that you were, uh, you know, the experienced writer that you're talking about is uh, uh, Terry Rossio um, has, has written in, uh, for a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of it comes down to the production. They, okay, let's get, all, let's get all these writers together and let's give them um, just the elements. We need all these elements and we need all these tossed together in kind of a salad. And if we get the effects right, people will just lap it up. Now, they're not wrong about that. Yeah. But this approach, which is why I kind of made fun of it a little bit, this approach, it, it, it makes for tedious character development. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, um, or maybe I should say not tedious enough, but but certainly not enjoyable characters, uh, very thin characters. And, and I kind of feel like that these films would do better if they just trusted one or two individuals, mm-hmm. very, very good writers, very creative writers, and just let them come up with whatever they did. Now, I mean, I know from our production notes from the other films, like for example, Godzilla 2014 was solely credited to Max Borenstein. But he was not the only writer. No. There were tons of writers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, a lot of the you know all all of these movies have this screenplay by with two or three or people, mm-hmm. but all of them had five, six, seven, a room full of people coming up with stuff. When that happens, what you end up getting is you you end up getting the mess that you got in this film. You get you get a mess. You do end up getting um, some some creative action scenes because somebody room comes up with something that's really cool yeah, yeah, yeah don't you don't get a coherent story no this and uh kong skull island aside that's been a consistent problem all the way through here it really has but i mean this is the apotheosis of the problem of this approach i think in in terms of the script and the the just the gigantic mess that this film is in in terms of its story anything else you want to add to the production notes or anything like that um i i don't think so i'm ready to dive in because actually yes i mean I, I i've put my criticisms on the table i'm ready to have fun now i'm, I'm starting to wonder if you and i might disagree a bit about this film <laughs> judging by our earlier uh preparatory work on this i i think there may be some grounds for constructive disagreement in this i can't wait but yeah this will be our first uh this might be the last podcast audience <laughs> returning to this uh notion of how this film was created i am reminded over and over again as i've been reading about it and thinking about the movie of that what's the peel and uh who are the comedians a uh, key and peel key and peel they did a really wonderful send-up of the writer's room for gremlins 2 yeah audience I'll, I'll try and remember to put a link to this in the notes of the of the of the podcast uh so you guys can watch it but i mean that I, is what i think happened in this film so at the end of godzilla king of the monsters jason made uh, a lot of heavy weather about they had better reference this scene the after credit scene they better reference this scene at the end of the other movie or it's just going to be a shameless attempt to try and piggyback on the kind of uh, larger universe uh, selling that MCU and, and the DC Comics universe engage in a bit. Yeah, Jason was like, it's just to be shameless. Jason was already pre-furious about this. And then he kind of backed down a little, backed down his fury a little bit because he hadn't seen the movie. And so Jason, did they adequately tackle this post credit scene from Godzilla King of the Monsters in this movie? Okay, if you... <laughs> 
<laughs> if you fracture, he's having to qualify a lot already. I, I I do I do because well we're gonna we're gonna have to back up to Godzilla King of the Monsters and Charles Dance's character who is inexplicably absent from this film. He was not a a gun for hire. Yeah, they were eco terrorists. They had an actual agenda. They would not have obtained Ghidra's head for the villains of this film. No, nope. they would not have done it. They like the villains of this film would have been the good guys in the previous movie. Yes. So Charles Dance's character would not have have done anything for them. No. For any amount of money. No, he was ready for the earth to be wiped clean and start and the biota, at least humans anyway, to be started over. He was ready right. for that. Okay, so I'll go on record and say that I don't think they address that end scene well at all. We do have something to do with Ghidra's head for some reason, and, and there's some things that Ghidra's head does, sort of, I guess, at the at the uh, you know in the third act of the film we see Ghidra's head working a bit so I don't think that they pay that that scene off especially since Charles Dance is nowhere to be seen in this film yeah, yeah. you know since they were throwing everything else at the movie why didn't they have him and his team trying to get the head back or something you know you know they could have been like hey they stole the head of Ghidra we gotta get it back we gotta destroy the world uh, maybe that's a deleted scene maybe I doubt it though because th this film has a really short runtime. it's under two hours when audiences found out about that there were people who were already clamoring for the director's cut but when Guard, he said he didn't like movies over two hours and so and what he said was that if fans wanted a, a, a three hour movie for this they wouldn't get an extra hour of monster fights what they would get is an extra hour of people talking about monsters which shows me what kind of a small minded director he is because like it shouldn't just be about the monster fights we should see like one of the great things about the Peter Jackson film is we get to see a lot of just like regular Kong behavior behaving like a big gorilla there could have been like a lot of cool things that develop the kaiju in this film. Wingard wanted us to, he, he reviewed all the Godzilla movies and all the Kong movies while he was, as he was in the process of the production of this film and absorbed very few of the lessons of the films. But Jason, I think disagrees with me, but he did get the thing that I think all kids get about these films is we empathize with the monsters. And he wanted to kind of depict that in the films. And I think, I don't think the film's super successful in that on that score. It is somewhat successful, but, but one of the ways we would have gotten a little bit more of that empathy is if we would have seen more of them just being normal creatures I think seeing them kind of live their own lives a bit interacting with their environment we got this in Kong Skull Island when we see Kong bathing in the water we we get this in in King Kong Peter Jackson's King Kong where there's a whole scene of King Kong just kind of like moving through the jungle eating this gigantic bamboo these gigantic bamboo shoots and just kind of behaving like a gorilla anyway Jason I'm sorry I've talked a little bit what let's, let's get some of Jason's uh ideas about this film no you see now see you say all that. I, I agree with that. I, I think that's a very good point. But I think we have to talk about cinematic trade-offs here. Okay. Because you're quite right. And I, and I did miss that. You're quite right. But at the same time, um, this film did gain in pacing uh, in uh, compared to the other films. Maybe not Kong, not Kong Skull Island. I, Kong Skull Island, I'm going to take out of the series. I'm going to set it over here. Yeah. I'm motioning to my left, which is a place of greatness. And I'm going to leave it there. Because I we talked about that film. It's a good movie. Solid movie. It does so many things right that it's really worth watching by anybody. But uh, comparing this film to the two Godzilla films, I think that um, what you just said about Wingard is a criticism and, and an accurate one. But I would ask the question: Does that help with the pacing of this movie? This movie does not. Remember, this is the fourth film. We've already had three films. We had a Kong film. We've had two Godzilla films. We've had two films that have beat us over the head with Monarch and and Alphas and Titans and God. 
Godzilla, friend or foe. We've had all that. And this film, um, as we'll get into in a second, really kind of gets things going right away. I mean, it, it, it's true, but it doesn't resolve any of the problem, any of the questions from the earlier films. Godzilla, friend or foe, still not answered. Kong is the is the sympathetic, is the really sympathetic monster in this film. Yes, um, yes. And, and he, but he was a sympathetic monster in Kong Skull Island. Kong has been the sympathetic monster since 1933. Well, you, I mean, you've told me that you have a theory about that, that, you know, that it's just easier for us to relate to Kong. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But it needn't be that way. There are ways that we could have done Godzilla that, that would have made it easy to relate to him as well. And the film kind of almost goes there a couple times with Gia, but it never commits to it. Gia is the young girl who you see in the previews audience who, who is Kong's buddy and uh, communicates with her and stuff like that. But there is a hint in the film that she also can communicate with Godzilla uh, and can sense him. And I wish they would have, I wish they would have jumped on board with that. Now, for me, it did help with the pacing in a couple ways. Very early on, I started to tune out the human stuff because it just was a mess. And and so like when I would come back in, oh, monster fight. Oh my God, here we go. Yes. You know, <laughs> yep. I was happy about all that. And then the humans would come in and I'd start to drool and fall asleep again because some of the stuff that it does uh, with the film, you and I praised Millie Bobby Brown in Godzilla King of the Monsters. And I also kind of want to generally in this case say, you know, this is a powerhouse cast of really good actors yep. and they all try really hard. And I don't, I don't think they're given, uh, I think that, I think that the film has too much going on. It has too many storylines going on, too many different people with traumatic hi history with the monsters. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård, his character, he was trying to summit the high, uh, the hollow earth and things went bad and now he's a scarred explorer. Damien Simons, I think is his name. He's got some kind of trauma. We only find out really later, late in the film, that his Japanese co-conspirator is related. We don't even actually ever find out. It's never said specifically that Rin Serizawa is related to Dr. Serizawa from the first film. Like, why the fuck is he working for Apex? <laughs> it's never explained. Explained. I I I I concede that because it's actually only this very evening that I even realized that his last name was Sarazawa. No, no, it's yeah. It's never made. It's never made a plot point. No. Which, which is good. Yeah. Because you're quite right. There's there is no reason why a member of the Sarazawa family would make a decision like this. And if they would, it needs to be explained. Like yeah. there needs to be some kind of backstory, some kind of I hated my my father kind of thing. That that wasn't. Now I've I've read the. I, just, I read today the actors the actor had an idea of the backstory in his head and there was some discussion of it among the writers I guess but it all ended up on the cutting room floor and the director Wingard was like I like that he was a bit of a mystery he was so much a mystery that it didn't matter you could have named him Bob yeah that's right I will concede that yeah absolutely. but in, in in the actor's mind the actor's name is Shun Oguri who's fine I mean he does a good job you know he had this idea that he and his dad had big disagreements about I mean they had a philosophical disagreement agreement about the kaiju and that he could he was trying to convince his dad that Godzilla wasn't that the kaiju weren't good for the, the for earth right that's what propelled him down the path to go work for apex cybernetics or whatever the fuck they're called so they were on these divergent paths because they had fundamentally different ideas about that's a neat idea it's useless in this film just name the guy something else because as the audience who paid attention to the last films were like is that is that guy related is that like a nephew of who is yeah. this guy you know um yeah. or Sarah's always just a really common name in Japan you know 
know, I mean, this is what you, you're left asking yourself. One thing that's becoming tiresome, I have to say, and, and look, everyone, I'm a James Bond fan. I've put up with 25 films of James Bond credits where they're all pretty similar, and mm-hmm. I love them. Um, I'm I'm a little tired of the credits and the style. It's it, it it was it was it was it was almost groundbreaking with Godzilla. It was great with uh, Kong Skull Island. It was almost I guess kind of like a nostalgia with Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah. It was like oh these again. Yeah. I I actually found the uh, the opening credits to be a little tiresome. I think that's getting a little old. Yeah. The 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 the, the filmmakers really do use the credits to try and jam in a lot of uh, exposition and narration and what's been going on. Okay, they do, they do, but I was, I don't know if I was annoyed or gratified that my criticism of the ending credits of Godzilla King of the Monsters mm-hmm. totally ignored. There was this narrative in the ending credits of Godzilla King of the Monsters that the Titans and the new balance that struck by Godzilla, Long Live the King, brought all this uh, balance to all these ecosystems throughout the world. Yeah. It's not referenced at all. It's not, it's like that never happened. Now that that does not hurt the pacing. I, I, I'm not. No, no, I, I mean, I, I'll concede that you're right about the pacing. I think that this film, the director did have a decent idea about the pace. I think a lot of good storytelling got left by the wayside, though. And I, I, I would concede that. Now, um, you, you and I both complained last time uh, for the last film about how the, the effects in the last film were uneven. Rodan looked great. Godzilla looked great. Ghidra didn't quite work for me, uh, and some of the other Titans didn't quite work for me. What did you think of the effects in this film? Kong didn't look as interesting as he yeah. Island. But other than that, I actually liked the effects better in this yep. movie than in the previous one. Now, I, I did too. I had some, there was something about the there was something about Kong that didn't quite work well for me in specifically, I mean, the action sequence is great, but there was something about the compositing of Godzilla in the scene Battle of the Pacific, which is an exciting fight, but there were some close-ups of Kong that didn't quite work and I don't know if it was the way he was interacting with the background like the, the kind of the, the kind of orange sky. There was something that was going on there. I like Kong overall in this film, but I, I, I'm with you. I thought the effects were a huge step up and, and and consistent across the board. Even some of the dumb Hollow Earth shit I thought looked great. Well, we'll get to that, and I yeah. get to that. But, but but I guess we should back up to the beginning of the narrative. It starts off with Apex, right? With the... Um, or no, start... Okay, we start off with uh, Kong. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's on Skull Island, so, yeah. so we think. And of course, we have the same title cards that we've had, you know, through all the films. Yeah. And we see Kong beginning his day. I think this is the only scene yeah. where we kind of get that call back to, you know, Kong and his uh, uh, his his morning routine. He sees a little girl who we assume is one of the natives of the island. Yeah. He has a, a, a Kong doll that's been carved. She's, Kong seems to know her. Uh, he, he roars, kind of moves over to her ear to establish that she's deaf. Yeah. We then see Kong take a tree, sharpen it, and toss it like a spear at the sky. And we then discover that Kong is not on Skull Island. But he's actually in kind of a Matrix version of Skull Island created by Monarch. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. And then we meet one of the uh, most important protagonists, if there are important protagonists in this film. Uh, Rebecca but- Hall's Eileen Andrews. She's a, she's a Monarch. She's a Monarch. I don't know if she's a scientist. She doesn't have a doctor affixed to her name. Eileen uh, Andrews. Which, by the way, Rebecca Hall was in Iron Man 3. Okay. Yeah. So I like the actress a lot. I like all the actors and actresses are yeah, yeah. in this film. She she's a fine actress. I, I will agree with you. It took me most of the film to warm up to her character. Yeah. Which was odd because I like her. That did stick out.
out to me, but she is working for, for Monarch and they have Kong contained. And I suppose, and this is something that the whole series does because I think they have this theory that Kong is an alpha and if Godzilla knows he's around, they'll have to fight. I mean, it's not that that's not logical, but this film does, like every, every scientist in these movies has these absolutely certain ideas about what will happen. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and, 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 and with, now with, with Sarazawa in the two Godzilla films, the reason that makes sense is because uh, as, you know, one of the few things I credited the last film with was that Sarazawa, the scientist, but he also is very honest about the fact that he's working on his intuition a lot more than maybe he would have earlier in his career. Yes. And the film establishes that, and that's fine. But a lot of these other scientists, uh, um, including Dr. Russell from the previous movie, tend, tend to just kind of make these offhand comments about these creatures, like they know exactly what they're going to do without, you know, with, with, with we can assume minimal research. They've been studying these creatures for a lot of years, but yeah. they don't inter- the creatures don't interact with each other that often. Godzilla first makes his appearance in the in the MonsterVerse in the 1950s when they first try and kill him. They appear sporadically throughout the historical record in these films. Kong hasn't had an interaction with Godzilla, presumably, since 1973. Yeah. We know Godzilla was not dead after 54. He could have popped up any old time when there's an alpha walking around, right? If that was going to be the thing. So I'm with you, yeah. Uh, there's there's no reason. They don't have enough data to make the kind of confident predictions that they make. No, not, not enough. None. There is zero. <laughs> You just pointed it out very well. I mean, history shows these two creatures have been alive for a long time. Yep. You know, neither of them have been hibernating. Why Why would they be a threat to each other now? Yeah. I mean, that could be the case, but there's no reason for them to think that. Well, no, you know, you, you know what they could have, I mean, a simple thing they could have done, they could have established like, they could. They, they didn't even need to put the dome, which I thought was just the dumbest thing ever. I mean, Kong is 390 feet tall and they built a giant holographic dome, you know, with a, a wall of jumbotrons that he could tell weren't weren't real jungle, right? I just thought that was silly, but I can write it off as part of the science fiction. But you could have had, you could have established a sense of aggression between these two if Godzilla buzzed the island a few times, like, yeah, stay on your island. The rest of the world is mine, right? Like you could have established and had Kong like throw stuff at him, you know, when he comes by. But you could have had this thing and you could have said, well, what we think as the scientist, that comes in, what we think is that Godzilla is content to kind of have this little territorial battle. Like this is my world out here. You're king of your little island, but you know if you st- if you try and leave this island, we're going to have a battle because you're entering my territory now. I had an Irish setter like that who thought if he would go into if he would go into some other dog's yard, it was fine. But when they would meet anywhere else in the world, my my Irish setter would attack because my my dog thought every other place was his territory. I think I'm going to kind of jump over to your side of the fence briefly. One of the problems with the the hologram, I didn't have a problem with the hologram. Okay, but but why does Kong you know Kong just figured this out you know a a, a, a more character driven film might have sh- given us time to see Kong figure it out yeah, yeah Kong is an intelligent creature you know he's been waking up every day thinking he's on Skull Island and so how long has this been going on well I know in the scene we see the scene pulls back from the broken hologram and we see that he's been testing the limits of the because there are other trees stuck through the holodome as well when the, when we pull back and get uh, even a greater aerial view so Kong is starting What I know 
what the the, the monarch scientist is like. He's he, he's getting tired of being in this in this in this uh, preserve. But the other question I have, and I didn't think of it until just now, why the fuck would Monarch do this? If if everything's about balance, a fight on Skull Island between Godzilla and and Kong doesn't matter. Doesn't matter to humanity. Doesn't matter. Godzilla comes and stomps the shit out of Godzilla uh, Kong. That's fine because Godzilla will come and stomp the shit out of the Skull Crawlers too. I just didn't understand why Monarch never gives a rationale other than oh it's cute you know he doesn't say that but but I, I i know that there's some problems with skull island there's a big storm that has always been around skull island somehow it shifted so much for balance so much for ecological balance the giant storm around skull island has now caused damage it's the reason why the little girl who is friends with kong has no family another monster verse familial trauma gia the poor girl all of her not just her parents but the entire tribal structures of skull island are gone nobody's left she's the last of her kind and and, and I gotta say that bothered me a little bit that that was just that was just like well yeah they're all dead <laughs> I think, didn't they say in like half a line that there was a storm or something? Well, yeah, the, 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 the storm shifted. The storm that surrounds Skull Island that they had to fly through in the beginning of the Kong Skull Island had shifted and destroyed the island. Now, now this is this is kind of almost good fan service because if, as everybody in the audience will remember, and Jason will remember, at the end of the, the classic film, Son of Kong, Skull Island sinks beneath the waves and the Son of Kong saves Carl Denham and his lady friend and gets them up above of the water so they can get to the boat or whatever. I can't remember the exact ending. We then discover that uh, uh, Eileen is friends and, and very attached with the, the little child. Gia, yeah. Who, who is the last of her people. That they, she's almost like a daughter to her. Yeah. And they and they begin communicating through sign language. Which Gia has taught Kong. Which we discover that later and it's, and Eileen doesn't know that yet. That's true. So, so this is all established and then we go forward. Is it then that we see the attack on Apex? Yeah, there's there's a there's a Apex is attacked in Florida. One of the only really happy things for me that happens in the movie when Florida is attacked by Godzilla. I like most of Florida, but I don't like the people that much. So, but Apex is attacked. That's kind of a fun scene. What did you think of it? Well, it is a fun scene. We have a uh, a former employee of Apex that uh, has become a podcaster, and, and he has a podcast about finding the truth out there or whatever. Now, I have to apply the break here. You will not know this. I know this. Okay, okay. Look, th this is a moment where uh, this film kind of goes uh, Roland Emmerich. Never go full Roland Emmerich. Never! Ever do that. And and I mean literally. Yes. There There is a scene in 2012. Have you seen 2012? Not yet, no. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I would try to rescue you from that. But there there is a scene in 2012, the Roland Emmerich film, where there is, a, he's not a podcaster, but he's like, you know, Radio Free America or something. He's this conspiracy guy who has a, 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 radio, a radio show or an internet show or, but he's been researching all this stuff and he knows at the end of the world is coming and and he's gonna be there when it all goes down on such and such a date and every uh, every time he releases a, a video or whatever he says you know this could be my this could be my last recording and so I, I actually was very aware that the character of Bernie Hayes yes the uh, conspiracy theorist who had the podcast was very much a Roland Emmerich character well and Roland Emmerich drew his inspiration because that's not the first time we've seen a character like that from 
from Roland Emmerich. In fact, because Roland Emmerich listens to people like that. I mean, like the Day After Tomorrow movie was inspired by a book by a talk radio paranormal show guy. Do you remember that guy? And uh, that guy had written a book on superstorms, I think. And, and Roland Emmerich was captivated by it because Roland Emmerich is captivated by a lot of dumb shit. And Tyree, uh, oh, sorry, what's the actor's, what's the character's name? Bernie Hayes. Bernie Hayes is that night show guy. I can't remember what the name of that show is. Sidebar. The person who I'm trying to get Jason to remember was a fellow named Art Bell. He had a talk radio program called Coast to Coast AM, and it was a show dedicated to all things paranormal, UFOs, Bigfoots, whatever. He, he talked about it. He seemed to be quite an inspiration for Roland Emmerich and perhaps the director of this film as well, because there are a lot of similarities between Bernie Hayes and characters in Roland Emmerich films, which isn't a good thing. So into the sidebar. And he's also using jargon that was a, was like appropriate to the old talk radio era. Harris has no character in this film other than he has another kaiju-related familial trauma. In his case, it's his wife who died, and she was probably happy because she didn't have to listen to his podcast anymore. But 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 he just he doesn't have any character. He leaps to so many amazing conclusions. He says things that he can't possibly know, like a lot of people in this film will do. But he he exists as Roland Emmerich style comedic relief. He's Brent Spinner from Independence Day. He's your pot, he's your talk radio guy from 2012. Yeah, which I think was Woody Harrelson. Okay, okay. I think Bern, the the actor who plays Bernie Hayes is probably quite funny, but I think he's 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 next to useless in this movie and he mostly just annoys me. Well, so um as this movie goes on, we will end up having two kind of teams. Yes. Uh and 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 this is the beginning of one of them. Yeah, yeah. So 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 sorry, I don't mean to, I I've gotten this off on a tangent so let's back up to Godzilla attacking Apex and you were you were you were there and yeah so Bernie in preparing for his final podcast has broken into Apex to download all of their information that they have to find out what they're up to and while he's there Godzilla attacks Apex yeah pretty much decimates it I think yes yes um he survives uh, I I would say that Apex uh their security is not not exactly top-notch as not exactly yeah you know, with an overweight um, podcast Caster. I mean, the guy did work there. Yeah. But it seemed like he was able to penetrate their defenses as if they were the defenses of, I don't know. I can't even think of how easy, what are easy defenses? I don't know. You know, like a toddler, right. a toddler's chest defense. I don't know. Anyway, you would think that their data security would be extraordinary given what will happen, what, what, what will be revealed about their capabilities later in the film. Yeah. But, but he basically waltzes in there and, and does get the data. He does get the data. And then of course, he he's present when Godzilla does his business yep. and he survives yes to to record yet another podcast yes to compete with us and <laughs> that's right yeah um and and then I think it's at this time that we are reintroduced to the Russells yes Millie Bobby Brown returns as Madison yeah uh, now you almost commented on Millie uh Millie's performance in this film I'll do it now okay she's not the same character to me I, I was prepared to forgive that because I, I I kind of looked at her as a character who had grown up a little bit 
bit. She's changed. She's, in her words, I was reading, she was like, her character's a little more independent now. You kind of see her, you know, trying to get out and demonstrate some of her own aut- autonomy and independence. But she is different. Is she the, is she too different, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I loved her in the previous film. She's one yeah. of the things about the previous film that I that I really, really thought was good. And, and I just didn't feel the same. I, I, I do have a theory about that because, so Madison is a, an ardent listener of uh, Bernie Hayes' podcast. I guess we can assume that, that she has two favorite podcasts, that one and Max and Jason watch a movie. That's right, that's right. But but this is the but this is the podcast that has that has inspired her. She calls her dad, and Kyle Chandler does have a, a bit role in this movie, not a not a big one. Yeah. Still working for Monarch, and she's trying to convince him of what's going on. And for some reason, he he's rather incredulous of what she's learned, even though you know she she acquitted herself rather well. I mean, it's in the previous film. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, I mean, I mean, she, she, she might trust her instincts just a little bit, but he he doesn't pay any attention, and so she she makes. Contact with Josh. Yes, her buddy. Her buddy, who's a delightful actor. He's he's not utilized here at all. No, no, at all. And in fact, he has he has the worst dialogue in the movie. He does. They try to get they try to make him a comic relief character. Yep. He is the flattest comic actor in the movie. Well, the 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 whole I think what what you're keying into about uh, Millie Bobby Brown and maybe all of them is how thin they all are as characters. I mean, to me, it's it's everything that's terrible about in terms of the the human drama and the way it's it, the way it's done it's everything that's bad about a Roland Emmerich film but it's also everything that's bad about a Michael Bay film yeah bad humorous dialogue kind of shallow pointless things you know the, the, for the second team to do because they are going so this is our second team Bobby Millie Brown uh, who is Madison Bernie Hayes and Josh that's his name right and they're gonna kind of try and confirm Madison's hypothesis that something is agitating Godzilla and for for some reason, she's able to rope in this great actor, Josh, who doesn't get to do anything in this movie. He doesn't get to do anything. He's not given any good lines. And then also, he steals his brother's Storm Chaser van. <laughs> it's the first <laughs> movie that's given a nod to Twister. Yeah, yeah. That's such a Michael Bay touch, or an Ernie, uh, Bernie, uh, uh, sorry, or a uh, Roland Emmerich Roland touch. That, isn't it funny that, that his brother is a storm chaser? You know, it's just like, yeah. okay, yeah, that's that's great, I guess. Why couldn't they just say, well, they've stolen the kaiju chaser van, you know? Like, I'm sure that Monarch has some gear that somebody could have driven around in, you know? Anyway, instead they had to do the stupid storm chaser thing, which is, I don't know, it seems like a Roland Emmerich thing. Well, and then, and then also, I, I read that the two of them in their screen test they use scenes from Romeo and Juliet okay I will say this I felt there I mean forget romance I know that they're buddies because actually the film only in a couple places even hints that maybe they dated but that's like half a line like actually very difficult to know what their relationship is at this time but were they doing like Romeo and Tybalt was that the scene that they were doing (laughs) I don't know, anyway. Right, because, no, I think the two of them, as with most of these films, through no fault of their own, oh, yeah. don't have any chemistry at all. And, and I'll make a comparison to Force Awakens, where you have Ray and Finn, where a lot of you know, their chemistry, the, the stormtrooper, who, who's, he's not he's a bad stormtrooper, but he's kind of out of his element on the Falcon, and yeah. Ray is very much a technician, and she's having to order him around. Like, that all works really well. There's a lot of great chemistry. It's funny. Yeah. None of that lands here. It, 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 it's all very annoying. And and just kind of like well I guess we have to have a comedy scene yes and it doesn't work and even when Bernie.
Bernie joins them, I think he's a little bit more adept at comedy than them. But actually, very little of this works or works. Absolutely. No, I, it doesn't work because he's like a lot of his comedy is these uh, supposedly funny conspiracy theory things that he says. Yeah. But like, it's not as funny as it might have been years ago, but it's also just not delivered well. He just throws these these lines out. Yeah. It's I just not a punchline. It's just like, oh, it's like the Illuminati when they did the, you know, when they when they faked the, the moon landing. He's just saying these things in hopes that it will develop some character that we get an idea of what he believes, you know, but I, I just don't think it works. It, it just seems too, it, it seems too lazy to me. Back to Madison and Josh, she's like, we've got to find this podcaster. But Josh very, very intelligently doesn't want to do it because he's like, maybe we should, I mean, I don't know if this is what he was thinking. This is what I'd be thinking. A podcaster? <laughs> maybe he's right, but shouldn't we take this information to the authorities? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But but she she usually calls the shots. He goes yeah. for that. And they do find Bernie and and she and when all she has to do is name drop herself and he opens the door to her and yeah. yeah yes this team doesn't work for me you know they're knocking on the door of Apex they're figuring that out I guess right they they all suspect thanks to Bernie that Apex is doing something to agitate Godzilla the Apex predators uh the alphas or whatever we call them go oh, sorry sorry I, didn't, I don't want to jump ahead no no you're not jumping ahead I mean we just have to take a step back because Alexander Skarsgård is Dr. Nathan Lind, who is the top billed actor in the film. We haven't even mentioned him yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a, a monarch geologist who and and chief explorer of the hollow earth theory. Mm-hmm. Did you see where he was teaching or working? I can't remember. The Denim uh, Geology or something. Oh, like that. that's great. Okay, so. I would have okay. liked that. I would have noticed that if I had cared, but I just, I didn't want to, but I tuned out during a lot of the human elements of this. But anyway, go ahead. So he's no, see, the yeah, see, I didn't know. So, uh, um, and and a lot of this is cliched. About the hollow earth, and it was rejected, and now he's the suffering, you know, fringe scientist who, you know, no one takes seriously. What we learn in this scene, because he, he, the main villain of the film, tries to recruit him, doesn't he? In the scene, almost yeah, but, in, the, in the first scene, we meet Lind. He's being recruited by Apex. Yes, by by whom? Oh, I can't remember the guy. Something Walt Walt Simons. That's the Walt, that's the character. Yeah, yeah, Walt Walt Simmons, who, Simmons. who the uh, um, which is that a is that a nod to? Walt Simons? Um, I don't think so, but yeah. you know, it would be nice if it was. But but we learn that Lind, to confirm the hypothesis of the Hollow Earth, he and his friend led an expedition to try and find it, and then but what they discovered was that very much like leaving the galaxy in Star Trek V, there's some kind of <laughs> barrier. <laughs> to getting into the hollow earth. And so most of the expedition was killed and Dr. Lind is the only survivor of that expedition. There's a lot of only survivors. Kong is an only survivor. Gia is an only survivor. Let's see here. Godzilla doesn't seem to have anybody around, but he seems fine with what... Godzilla doesn't doesn't carry a lot of his trauma and doesn't talk about it, which is fine. I, I appreciate stoicism and Godzilla is our philosophical embodiment of stoicism. He's got like a bunch of stoic manuals. Well, he was... He hung out in, in Atlantean ruins in the last one. There's probably a lot of like classical literature. True statement. True statement. <laughs> but Walt Simons wants Lind to do what again? He he wants he wants his help because Apex has determined that there is an energy source in the hollow earth. Yeah. Where the creatures get their power. And if they can harness that power, they can they can actually uh deal with the Titans. Because you know, of course, Godzilla has attacked Apex, and now the world is questioning. 
Godzilla friend or foe again. Yeah. Is this the third time now? I think, yeah. Yeah, and and he wants Dr. Nathan Lind to, to come with them. And this is just uh, too much for him to resist. And Now, here's a question I have for you. If you wanted to lead a successful mission into the Hollow Earth, would you go to the guy who led a c- catastrophically unsuccessful mission to the Hollow Earth? Maybe you just take your chances on your own. But there's another point to that. Okay. Uh, because he tells Dr. Lind that he ha- he has equipment. Okay. That Right? Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. Because that, that Apex has equipment that has already solved the problem. Right, right, right. Why is he bringing in anybody at all? Yeah, yeah. When he's up to no good. That's right, that's right. It turns out that the way to get into the Hollow Earth is they need they need a, a kaiju guide, I guess. Right, and it just so happens that Dr. Lin's something, yeah. actually, it's never stated that they were an item. Oh, Dr. Lin, Dr. Lin and Eileen? Yeah, she was his colleague. Let's stop for a second. Let's do. I actually noticed this just today. Okay. In thinking about this, film, I realized, you know, they never really establish any kind of romantic connection between these two. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, um, I mean, that's not cliched. No, just, no. Right? Yeah, yeah. But then it kind of occurred to me. They don't do that in any of these films. No. I mean, except for the first film where you have Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and, and their marriage and they need to get back to each other. Other than that, they um, these films do not waste time with romantic entangles. And, 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 and not really. I mean, we have the divorce of the Madison so not really the divorce they're just kind of sundered but there's but, no, there's and no, they never come together they're never reunited no and and that is a way in which it is very much unlike a Roland Emmerich movie who generally yeah. has like a dumb romance that we better see resolved this you know that that's the drama point that that we really need despite the fact that billions have died over the course of the movie but thank god the two stars got together that thank yeah. god that got resolved I, I don't know if that was a, an intentional choice or if they just said look we've got enough spaghetti on the walls we don't need to deal with any romantic entanglements well just shorthand with these these human characters yeah yeah. that's the common theme uh, i i mean even though kong skull island does pretty does very well yes i mean i mean i think we can just lay that down right now that of the four films kong skull island by far yes does the best with the human character absolutely now he uh lynn agrees and he's gonna go lean into this relationship that he's had this whatever it was he's gonna he's gonna utilize the I mean Lynn doesn't think anything's up though he doesn't realize that he's actually dealing with Cobra Commander <laughs> I mean he, he's he's they kind of play him as he, he's very inexperienced yep. has these ideas but he's kind of a jittery fellow yeah well you would be after having all after having led the expedition where your best friend died or whatever he was okay so he's reunited with, with her and he talks her into bringing Kong to lead them through the hollow earth Yes. Skipping anything, am I? No, you're not. No, because he's. I can't remember what his rationale to her is. Except maybe he sells the idea of a lot of energy. It's returning Kong to his homeland. They, they yeah, think that's that, it. Because they think that Kong lives is is kind of lived in the Hollow Earth, and that's where they really reside. Yeah, because and 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 it's not a bad argument because Kong has nowhere to go. Yeah, you know, old Skull Island 
was kind of wiped out. And so she goes along with it. And then they have Kong strapped to the uh, to a large ship yep. sailing to, I believe, Antarctica. Yes. They're supposed to be in, um, you, you said the Pacific. It's actually a sea between Australia and New okay, Zealand. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, uh, and the only reason I know that is because the, the, the piece of the score is named after that sea. Okay, okay, okay. I think it's the Sandstone Sea or something. Okay, okay. So, so they have Kong and they have him kind of knocked out on the ship. Yeah. And, but, so this is the point that I'm getting to. Dr. Lind is a little scared of Kong. Yes, yes. And Eileen and the child, the child, Gia, uh, signs that, that, that Nathan is a coward. Yes, yes. Now, in the context of what you just said, though. Yeah. That his, you know, his, he lost his brother. Yeah. Survivor of a very brave expedition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that scene, I, okay, it's paid off later. Yeah. But in the moment, that scene doesn't really ring true. Well, I, I, I think I could forgive it. This is a moment where I'll forgive the movie. Gia is a kid, you know. I mean, that's right, but Eileen goes along with it. Yeah. She clearly agrees with Gia. That's true. That's She does do that. That was that was wrong of Eileen. I agree. I agree. I would also be incredibly frightened of Kong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's the... I'm not Gia. I don't have a, a, a signing relationship with this ape that could crush me like I was Charles Grodin. Audience, Charles Grodin is an actor who I, died recently, right? Died a couple days ago. Yeah. So a tribute moment. Yes, a little tribute moment. And and Charles Grodin had the privilege of being killed by Kong in, I know one of our favorite movies from our youth that we can't really recommend, but it was the 1970s remake of King Kong. Yes, yes, yes. Which, by the way, because because you mentioned that, yeah, yeah. the um, he doesn't have a very big role, but the director of, of Monarch in this movie, mm-hmm. played by Lance Reddick, yeah. he's not in it very long at all. He's on the ship. Yeah. Uh, his character's name is is Gwillerman. Okay. Gwillerman, uh, John Gwillerman was the director of the 1976 King Kong and King Kong Lives. Okay, okay. So, oh, yes. uh, I, will, I will recommend right now seeing King Kong Lives. No, you won't. I, I will because it is such a preposterous movie that <laughs> I think I think everyone should bear witness to it. I kind of like it. It's not a good movie, but it is a movie. So, at the end of, sorry, audience, we're going off on a little tangent, but I would rather talk about anything other than the film we're talking about today. Um, but Kong falls off the World Trade Centers at the end of, of the 76 or 78 or 70 something. 76, 76. 76. Um, and we all thought he died. But as Linda Hamilton will discover in uh, King Kong Lives, uh, actually he's alive. And some group of scientists, I can't remember who now, gave him an artificial heart. Yes. And we find a female Kong that he can, they can, they can, they can save this endangered species if they're careful. And anyway, audience, see the movie. It's actually hard to find. I haven't been able to find a DVD or it's not streaming anywhere that I know of but there's some good ape work uh, ape suit work it's, it is people in, in in ape suits and I thought they did a pretty good job of their ape suit stuff not so much of the script writing or the acting or, or uh, even most of the special effects uh, but you guys should see that movie not because it's good though sorry I got I got off on a tangent but but you, I, I agree with you Lind isn't a coward and Gia is wrong but I, I would be certainly frightened of Kong so they need to get but they do need to get Kong, they all think, to Antarctica without Godzilla finding him. Right. Fat chance of that happening. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Godzilla seems to know where these, these creatures are. They never really establish, or maybe they do when I just missed it, and if I do, if I did, Jason can correct me here. Why does, would Godzilla be attracted to any of any of these creatures? How does, how is alphaness established if there's not kind of, some kind of conflict between the creatures? Like a deer, a, a white-tailed deer, or a, a dominant moon 
loose at the center of some breeding territory doesn't go seek out other males to fight. They have to come to it and they'll have a fight and they'll have a tussle and whoever wins becomes the dominant. Like if Kong, did, to me, it just seems like if Kong didn't seek Godzilla out, then why would Godzilla be threatened by him or feel like he needed to have a fight with him? But he's aware of Kong is thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. Because remember, Godzilla was in Florida. Yes. So, I mean. Some ways away from Antarctica, if I remember my geography. Exactly. So uh, Godzilla has this amazing ability. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's no, there's no hiding from him. So you better watch out. <laughs> Well, so so my narrative at the beginning about the index cards yeah. is is proving to be true in yeah. our discussion. So, but uh, so Godzilla shows up, and then we have uh, really the first major action movie or action scene of the of the film. Now, before uh, we I get to the action scene, I want to talk about like the beat we get just before that. They they hint that Gia is not just connected to Kong, but they hint that Gia is also connected to Godzilla in this scene in something that will never really pay off too much. Okay, go ahead. So prior to that, we get some nice little moments of Gia and the ape because Kong is not happy on the ship being chained up. Right. Um, and she does some comforting of Kong. Is it is this the scene where Kong signs to her and, and she sees this it is the, the first scene. time? She with... goes out to Kong and, and, and it's raining and everyone's panicking because she's out there uh, with Kong and she signs to him and Kong signs back and everybody sees it. Yeah. And um, which was a mistake by, uh, okay, so Gia has kept this secret from her best friend all the time. And then she goes out and in plain view of all these people whose motives she personally questions, yeah. she reveals it to everybody that she and Kong can communicate. That's right. That's right. Now, I actually like this scene. I, I do I, too. No, I, I like it too. It's one of the, the things that I like about the movie. Starting here, a lot of a lot of the human Kong creature stuff actually started to kind of lure me into the movie. This next segment actually all the stuff getting kong to antarctica through the hollow earth to his homeland that stuff i i kind of enjoyed i i'm with you i i i, I thought this was i i kind of gave myself to this part of the film the, this premise and this part of the film and i enjoyed some of the fan service that i'll get to in a second that they do but but i like the gia kong stuff uh, it's something i wish they would have explored more I don't and that leaves us with the navy and monarch taking kong to antarctica you know, you don't you don't put your foot in Godzilla's pool apparently, which I don't think Kong does actually. But I guess his hand is in the water a little bit. We see a nice little moment where where the aircraft carrier, the cargo ship, is you know trawling along, and Kong's hand is in the water, which is a nice effect of the of the ocean like splashing through his fingers. I like a lot of the behavioral stuff in this scene. I like I like Kong and I like Gia's interactions. You know, they're in Godzilla's pool and he finds them in this yeah. scene. And as you said, this is our first major beat. But before anyone else knows, before the sufficient sophisticated military apparatus that has a metric ton of sonar and 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 probably radar connections and and satellite connections i'm sorry gia knows godzilla's there before anyone else because she has this moment where she's like she perks up and she turns in the direction of godzilla i presume then she runs and tries to tell eileen i think and i think but by the time she gets there to make this announcement godzilla's on him and they kind of uh revisit the scene from the godzilla where godzilla is swimming hard for the aircraft carrier but in the Godzilla 
2014, Godzilla basically did a, a whale dive and dove under the aircraft carriers and emerged on the other side of them, not hurting them. Right. But this time, Godzilla plows right through an aircraft carrier and then emerges to fight Kong. Now, at this moment, when before this, before Godzilla reaches Kong's ship, they're trying to get Kong's shackles undone because right. they're worried that he can't, he won't be able to fight with the, uh, you know, with handcuffs on, which is probably true. Yeah. Uh, this scene specifically is really to me when the movie takes off. First of all, we begin with Kong on the vessel as we had stated, which is I thought was a bit of a nod to the '76 King Kong film. It is odd that this film decided to genuflect for that movie. Is it, it really does? And in I, audience, if you get a chance and you read the IMDb trivia page, Wingard really did like the '76 movie a lot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, it's not an accident. I mean, it wasn't an accident that this movie does so much to, like you said, genuflect. I do like that. Yeah. I like that film. That's not true. Jason does like that film, but he can't <laughs> recommend it. I like how this was set up. Godzilla shows up, and I gotta say, as the first major action beat of the film, this is one of the things that actually began selling the movie to me because it's kind of a terrifying scene. You just kind of laid out that, you know, if you're a, if you're a Navy man, as my brother was, that, and you're out in the, in the ocean, and you try to imagine something like this happening, it would be really terrifying. I was terrified. I actually felt a great deal of fear one of the things that immediately hits you is, okay, Godzilla is is going to take out all of these ships and all of these people are going to die, including our protagonists. They're all going to die. Yeah. And there's this race to free Kong. But one of the things that I thought about was, well, wait a minute. Kong can't exactly touch bottom. <laughs> yes, yes. Just freeing Kong is, is really, is still a, a snowball's chance in hell of survival. Yeah. And so actually, I think all of this, the, 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 uh, the Apollo 13 writing team at the beginning this is one of the things they did right this was a true this is a great scenario it is and and even some and and, and the creature acting the animation and the mocap people motion capture people did a really good job kong looks nervous he mm -hmm. is upset about being i mean he he does seem panicked because he's a smart critter and he probably understands the huge disadvantage that he is at here he's on the ocean like you said he can't touch bottom uh, they're they're big they're not that big this is godzilla's element godzilla does doesn't need to touch bottom. And at, in this moment, Kong is chained to an anchor if the boat sinks. Yeah. And we we, we we get a kind of a preview of the danger because after Godzilla destroys one of these ships, he gets tangled up in the anchor of another one and yeah. just drags it right under. Yeah. You know? This is all this is all spectacular. It is all spectacular. Now, does Kong get... Do they free him or does he free himself? I can't remember. Oh, okay. This is really odd. I never thought this would happen. For the second straight podcast, there will be a reference to the Poseidon adventure because the vessel that Kong is on flips over. That's right. Kong, and, but this is great. This is all, yep. this is great stuff. Kong is under the water and he has to be freed. And our our resident coward, Dr. Nathan Lind, is the one who goes to operate the equipment to release him. Pretty cowardly stuff, really. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so he releases him. And, and then uh, I guess we could say round one begins. Yes. Kong has a little tussle with Godzilla under the water, manages to get free. The Naval ships drop a bunch of death charges, which is a cool sequence. Yeah. Like really the, the, the naval warfare against Godzilla is really cool. Kong 
swims to another ship and gets on it and does some cool dominance display stuff and Godzilla erupts out of the water. This I, I think the fight scene actually is really cool between Godzilla and Kong in this. Godzilla is a force of nature. When he gets on the ship, he's destroying everything that he touches. Basically, he smashes through airplanes. They blow up under his hands and it doesn't hurt him. But of course, Godzilla is at a disadvantage getting onto the ship because for a moment, very much like Anakin Skywalker will on Mustafar, he seeds the high ground and <laughs> as he gets on the ship, he eats a massive overhand right from Kong, which everybody's seen in the trailer. I'm not revealing anything. And Kong hits him and shoves him back off the boat. Um, I will Now, there is a moment, I mean, several moments where they're both standing. In an yeah. carrier. Yes. I wasn't so sure about that. I've been on an aircraft carrier, not in a serious situation, but these two creatures weigh quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wasn't so sure. What do you think about that? Oh, I you know I don't remember what I don't remember what Godzilla weighs, but these are both. What, you knew at one time. It's not any data I've kept in my head. Sidebar. According to a few different web sources, Godzilla weighs 90,000 metric tons and Kong weighs 50,000 metric tons. So Kong is battling outside of his weight class. So into the sidebar. These are enormous creatures. I, I just, I don't know if an aircraft carrier, I mean, how much can, how much extra displacement can these things get? I think you could get like one of them on there. Yeah. But could they both be fighting on one? I, I don't think so. I think a lot more of these ships would be at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. But but it looks great. It, it looks, looks great. great. It looks great. Um, And maybe, maybe we're wrong about the physics. I don't know. But it looks great. And uh, Godzilla wrecks this fleet and beats yeah. King Kong's ass, basically. I mean, Godzilla wins the first round. I, I, I would say clearly. I mean, and in fact, although I, I will say that uh, Kong can, can hold his head high for surviving at all. However, the only way they get Godzilla to go away is to play dead. Yeah, like Kong is kind of beaten up and the fleet shuts down its power and Godzilla. And so they're basically, basically they, they seem to perform a submissive gesture to Godzilla and Godzilla yeah. leaves. And then they decide, so after that, so Godzilla leaves. He's not vindictive. He doesn't just stick around and sink all the ships. But they decide that they're going to have to airlift Kong and I don't know how th they don't have enough helicopters by the way in the next scene that, that that does this but so they decide to put Kong in a net and airlift him the rest of the way to Antarctica to keep him off the to keep him off of Godzilla's radar now this scene airlifting Kong is an homage to I think this happened in in the original King Kong versus Godzilla but it also happened in one of my favorite Toho films King Kong Escapes okay where uh, which is a which is a kind of a cool film film and I recommend everybody watch. I won't go into too much detail here. But Kong fights a Mega Kong in King Kong Escapes and they do airlift him uh, to a location which I think is a it's a blur location. Okay. I'm sorry, it's been a while since I watched it, audience. They airlift him to, to this novel environment and we get to see Kong kind of interacting with the snow which doesn't happen very much at Skull Island, I guess. I do want to back up just a second because oh, yeah, yeah. we have to return to our other uh, intrepid uh, heroes do we? Uh, who have broken into to Apex and which still seems to be functioning still smoldering like most of florida all the time <laughs> that's true that's true and they and they go in and they find that there's still an area that's that's still functioning now why godzilla would not have you know sealed the deal uh, i'm not sure but oh wait a minute i know why they why godzilla didn't seal the deal because the because a, a certain device got shut off thing they're setting they have a signal that 
is basically like the orca from the last film. And with that device, they orchestrate the attack. Basically, they agitate oh, Godzilla right, right, right. with a, basically a, an alpha predator signal that causes Godzilla to come and say, hey, what the fuck? But, but but as he's destroying it, after a while, they just I think they shut it down or he shuts it down just by the damage that he does. And, and then he leaves. He doesn't even, Godzilla probably doesn't even understand it. You know, he's like, what's this cityscape doing? I'm the boss. And he destroys it. They have to hide from the Apex guards and they hide in this, it looks like, a, you know, a, a freezer unit and, and they shut the door and then Apex security is pretty incompetent, but they're delivering supplies to Hong Kong and they're going to travel through the hollow earth. Um, they're a little frightened, but this is how they end up getting into the so, so that's enough of that. I mean, that's just, we need to get our heroes to the other side of the earth. Now, hold on for a second. Do you see how simple that was? It's kind of lazy. Yes. But it, but it served to get our second team of pointless heroes to, to the, I mean, it was just, it was a very simple writing trick, you know? Um, yes. Now. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm just saying there were ways that this film could have uh, okay. really streamlined the screenplay. Though I agree with that. I, and, and, and Max 2.0 is not, is not going to buy any of that, but I'm going to channel Max 1.0 from the last <laughs> and say that starting now, I actually think that as ridiculous as this film is, it's a shitload of fun traveling through the hollow earth to the other side to Hong Kong. It's a big eye roll. It, it's dumb. But actually, or actually, I would say starting with the fight on the ships, this film starts to have a lot of fun. You know, I'm going to actually, I, I might surprise Jason. I'm going to agree with that. I had a lot of fun in these segments. I, I watched this with my son who was having a good time. It wasn't until I started thinking about the film after watching it that Max 2.0 started to emerge from the, the broken soul of Max 1.0. And the more I thought, the sadder I got. But as I was watching it, I can't deny that I had a lot of fun. I saw the I saw the stirrings of this even as far back on when you were like, when you kind of had a hand to your ear like, did I hear that right? Hollow Earth? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, that was not something that you were buying even then. And this film leans into that big time. Uh, you know, I would have been uh, okay with the Hollow Earth if the writing about it had been a little more coherent, uh, a little less slapdash. Now we're at the entrance to the Hollow Earth and Kong doesn't know what to do. And the humans, and I thought this was kind of funny, they don't know what to do. Yep. We're here now, what? And I actually like that when Irene says to Gia to tell Kong to go into the hollow earth, and then she asks, will he find others like him? And she says, I don't know. And I like that Irene doesn't lie to her. It's a consistent character moment. Kong decides to take the, the risk and he goes into it. Of course, very forgettable character, but uh, Simmons, head of Apex, his... Uh, uh, thinly written daughter is sent to oversee everything in this expedition. Terribly written character because when she shows up, she's not scared of Kong at all and she's all cocky. Now, see, that's fine, but they should have kept that. Either, either she's out of her element or she's not. Yes. Apex has these hollow earth vehicles that are able to take the strain of traveling through a hollow earth and they're basically like hovercraft or something like yes. that the walt simon's daughter seems to be qualified to pilot them they've got their own apex also has its own special operations team but you're right she's funding in this universe <laughs> there's a lot anyway this character maya simmons uh, who leads both the special operations and the Apex Away team might be written thinly because the the larger message of her character is I think maybe nepotism doesn't pay. <laughs> right. um, 
which we'll get to in a bit. But she's so thinly written that she's not even like Iceman from Top Gun. We don't get to know, we, we never don't know if she's really competent or if she's just a, nep- a nepotic hire. She serves her purpose for the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. Not a good character. It's not no. a her character's thin. We're going to shift gears back to, to me having fun. Once they go into the hollow earth. Savage land. Yes, but it looked good. It looks great. This is where we will, I think, depart, even though I don't think you'll disagree with me. I'm, I'm suspecting that what I'm going to say didn't rescue them for you, whereas I think it did for me. Okay. Beginning here, the movie almost becomes a Ray Harryhausen, not with stop motion effect, but uh, so uh, folks, Ray Harryhausen was a stop motion animator. He was a, a student of Willis O'Brien who did the stop motion animation in the first Hong film. And Harryhausen was brilliant. And a lot of the films that Harryhausen worked on, he did uh, numerous Sinbad films that are a hell of a lot of fun. And I would recommend any of them. He did Clash of the Titans, which I think was the last film that he worked on. And, and one of the things about Harryhausen film, and of course the stop motion animation is a little dated, but it still, still looks good. It still looks fun. Is that these films would, when I watched them as a child, they would take me to places that I didn't expect. You would run into characters you expect would run into, into locales that you did and they always look good. I think of uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger is one that I had a lot of fun with in the late 70s. Beginning here, I began to feel like, okay, this is the first film in this series that actually is just pulling out all the stop and just taking me on a ride. And I really appreciated the film was doing that and doing it well. You just pointed out, you said the Savage Land, Max said the Savage Land, which is a Marvel uh, locale. Um, in the same place. You find the Savage land by going to Antarctica. So it's the same idea. Look, there's no doubt it's somebody in that Apollo 13 meeting where they had to put all the index cards together. They were readers of, of Marvel and, and they came up with that. But the visuals delivered. They do. I cannot deny it. And these scenes actually are some of the scenes I got really excited about while watching the movie. There's Kong's kind of discovering his people, his heritage. We get the team reacting to things too. It's all very good. We see Kong finally in a place where he's quite happy. And, and we see him fight a creature that gives him trouble, yeah. which was kind of reminiscent of the 33 Kong, where he fights, he has like 17 fights in like three minutes. Yeah. That looks glorious. It looks great. So we'll get to the other team, Hong Kong drama in a minute. But when Kong gets to the great hall of his people, this kind of almost, this weird place where he finds a great battle axe, which has Godzilla sco- uh, uh, scale on it, one of the scale spots yeah. in it. I found myself going, oh my God, this is amazing. What, what we're learning about Kong, but I mean, but when I thought about it later on, it kind of dawned on me that we don't really learn a lot. We see a lot of cool images, but we don't really get a lot of explanation. Simultaneous to the arresting visuals in the Savage Land, uh, Hollow Earth, I mean, Godzilla arrives in Hong Kong. Can't remember why he gets there, but he basically <laughs> creates a quick tunnel for Kong to go from the Hollow Earth to Hong Kong, which I just thought was a little too neat and a little too weird. And I don't remember why they did that. Maybe you can explain. It is a little too neat. I, I agree with that. I thought that as well. To kind of jump ahead, Godzilla has arrived in Hong Kong, attracted by the same thing that he he experienced in Florida. We finally see Godzilla uh, attacking, uh, in this case, a Chinese city. Yeah. Now, I've never been to Hong Kong. I'm. And have you? No, no, never have. I'm going to assume that, uh, uh, you know, any listeners who've been to Hong Kong, and you can let us know if we have the same pro- problem that we had with Boston and San Francisco. To be clear, that problem is not really having a recognizable geography 
Boston in the previous film didn't look like Boston. San Francisco didn't look like San Francisco. They just look like big cities with no real place or flavor. It's a nice animated Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. But but I, but I but I can't really answer that. I but I kind of enjoyed it. I like colors. I like to see Godzilla in Asia again. Yeah, yeah. And he's going through the city, and then um, Godzilla senses the power because the axe has some residual hollow earth power, and it had, well, it's the radiation that uh, that Apex is looking for. That's right. And of course, the film has established in a rather silly way, but but the film has established that Godzilla is very sensitive to. Him. Yeah. He immediately uses his radiation breath. Okay, you're right. This is dumb. And and he burns a hole to the center of the earth. Yes. I say it out loud. It's dumb. Yes, yes. But that's like the name I, Skullcrawler. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But where, but where I'm going with this, I was in total Harryhausen film mode. This is so, this is all fun. So when you were saying when you were talking about Ray Harryhausen, the film, this film, more than the other film, I think you're right. Does function as, and this is the word I think you were looking for, as a creature feature. Yeah. It gives us all kinds of creatures. We get a, a few. We get we get all kinds of creatures. We get all kinds of like fantastical scenery, and it is glorious because the effects are really good. My like I said, I only had a couple problems with the effects, and that was a little bit with Kong on the aircraft carriers. Everything in 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 I almost said the Savage Land. Everything in <laughs> in Kong's Hollow Earth looks great. It is really beautiful. Now, why Kong should survive the giant fall that he takes from entry into Savage Land? I mean, basically, he has like a halo jump, which is a high altitude, low opening shoot. Sands the low opening shoot. <laughs> why he should survive that, I don't know, but he does. Whatever, it's fine. And when he gets to the Savage Land, the CGI, the 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 animation acting and the mocap acting is great. I really get a sense when I'm watching that film is like a being coming home. And I think it does that really well. Yeah. It's a great creature feature. And the question I was going to have, I had for you when you were laughing at yourself, as you were saying, and Godzilla burned with his atomic breath to the center of the earth is, I don't have an opinion about this. So I'm asking you uh, not as a gotcha moment to open up those cuts that I've been trying to open up the whole podcast, but is the film consistent within its premises? Jason and I are huge fans of the Marvel comics films, which bend rules of reality and physics all the time. But yeah. my rule is this. If it's consistent with the rules that it lays out and it, and it doesn't play outside of the of the, of the the parameters it's given us, then I'm fine with that. Does Godzilla work in that way? When you ask that, that, that I mean, I agree with your, uh, your requirement. But if Godzilla's breath can do that, then none of these creatures could survive three seconds. No, that's a good point. Because he does burn through a lot of Earth and... <laughs> And when last I checked, Kong was just a big. I, I think in this in this set of films, he's a chimpanzee of some kind. Yeah, I'm going to continue to defend this. Go ahead. Yep. On, on the grounds, on the grounds, because I mean, all, I mean, all the criticisms we made in the first act, um, I, I I agree with 100. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of gave me permission to just okay, is this film going to entertain? Me? Okay. And, and there came a point. Oh, oh, and I guess we should kind of uh, push pause here. I don't know why we didn't mention this in the beginning because this is a very interesting. I mean, the listeners actually might be interested. You saw this on HBO, correct? Yes, yes. I saw, this is my first post-pandemic, even though the pandemic actually is still going on, but I'm fully vaccinated, folks. Get vaccinated if you haven't been. This was my first foray to the theater well over a year. Yeah, yeah. On the big screen. Sitting in the dark, during these scenes, I was very conscious of the of the broad smile on my face through all of it. Okay. And, and even though I grant everything that you're saying, I I ceased hearing. And, and, and you and I, I mean, I think I think I can speak for Max that, that both of us over the years we don't have a lot of patience for manipulation. But I don't think what this film does is manipulation. It, that's it, that's it, fair. It, it's stunning visual. It, I mean, the effects are very good, but they're 
also creatures that uh, you mentioned the creature feature, with the exception of, uh, let, let's bookend them, although I'll also add the original Godzilla. Let's bookend 1933 King Kong and 2005 King Kong. In between, you have a lot of fun films that are a great way to spend an afternoon. Yep, yep. To see monsters fight each other and, and just have a great time. And I think that at a certain point in this film, this film just totally shifts in that direction. In my in my review of Godzilla King of the Monsters, I uh, cautioned any monster film from, from, from uh, Never Go Full, Roland Emmerich. Yeah. Early in this film, this fi it absolutely dipped its toe in those waters quite a bit too much. Yeah. I think that at a certain point, though, this movie just kind of takes off and just kind of has fun and lets go of a lot of that stuff and lets Godzilla, who we love, yeah. King Kong, who we love, take center stage. They let the effects just kind of take over and let these, these iconic characters, that's important, oh, yeah. iconic characters do things that we've always wanted them to. Yes, there's a lot of cheats. There's a lot of bullshit about Godzilla burning through the earth with his radiation breath, but it gets us to something that we want. And the only remaining question is, is that done well? Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm prepared to say that the creature feature stuff is done superbly. And and like, I was like, oh, I was like amazed when, when Godzilla does the radiation breath to the center of the earth. Somehow it does this thing that it, re it sort of reveals kind of a deeper Kong ape culture. It mm -hmm. powers up his axe. It's this kind of cool challenge call moment where Godzilla's like, all right, well, let's finish. Basically, Godzilla's like, let's continue this fight. You're yeah. ready now, I guess, or whatever. I mean, this is all fun stuff. I, I, I grant that. Pivot for a moment to Team One. We'll call the Skarsgård team Team One. What happens here? Because I have to confess, audience, and it's not the tequila talking. I don't remember what happens here with the humans in the no, Hollow no, Earth. So, so what happens is, is in this moment that Maya Simmons reveals that they were all in it for corporate ends from the very beginning, which surprised all of us, not at all. No, no. And, and she kind of betrays our heroes and takes a sample of the energy. And, and all they have to do is cut a little pore out of the radiation. And I guess that Apex, we as we've as we've demonstrated, all of Apex's money goes to their technology, yeah. go to their security. But all they have to do is take a sample of the radiation and they're able to get all the energy they need for their plan, which we'll reveal in a moment. However, things don't go well for Maya. Nope. This is my nepotism caution here. Yeah, but see, but see this is also what's dumb. Because, yeah, yeah these little bat-like creatures come out and they kill all the humans. And and she dies in, in fear and trembling. But these are little bat-like creatures. Yep. He wasn't scared of Kong. No. And I thought that was kind of dumb. It's Kong that kills her, though, isn't it? He grabs her thing and she tries to get away and he crushes her. Oh, that's right. Now see, now, see, audience, like, as many complaints as I would later have about the film, I was like, yeah! But it's kind of shallow because even I recognized it at the time, this isn't an earned comeuppance. Yeah. And and you could have you could have pitched this in a way to the actress. So, you know, you're going to act brave in front of Kong, but secretly, you're not. And, and and there would have been some subtlety. Yeah. There were no subtlety. This film is not really a fan of subtlety. <laughs> not not very often uh, at all, really. And so she, she is about to leave all the, the people behind in this hollow earth thing where the bat creatures are coming and, and attacking everybody. So she betrays herself as the coward and she gets destroyed. And it's that's kind of a fun moment. I mean, it's shallow as it is. It's like, but so our heroes, Lind, Eileen, and Gia, I think they follow Kong up out of the hollow earth, right? Yeah, they, they, they take one of the vessels. Kong goes up because he knows Godzilla. Because Godzilla's done his scream. Yeah. Kong's, Kong's ready to rumble and he goes up there and... and 
this is all set up very well. It is pretty nicely done. Now, again, here's 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 a thing that I would think about later. Why is it so easy to leave the Hollow Earth now? I mean, I just you know, getting there was a nightmare because of the weird event horizon or whatever it is. But I would I would imagine that that would exist in all directions. Uh, but anyway, they get out really easily. Maybe it's just atomic breath. It does, it goes a long way. Well, but how did Carl Denham get Pong to New York City in the 1930 Pong? There's that's a good that's a good question. Ah, uh, yeah, they did. All right, all right. Yeah. Yeah, big boat. Uh, <laughs> the Lusitania before it went down, maybe. I don't know. But uh, so they get up and Godzilla and Battleaxe wielding Kong. This is a fun fight. And this fight is one of the reasons why I think the film did so well. Because oh, yeah. the mainland yeah. Chinese market has to love seeing Hong Kong get destroyed because of its its potential problems, its rebellious nature. <laughs> and everybody else in the international audience is just like giant monsters fighting. Ah, no, not giant monsters. Kong and Godzilla. That's and, and that is actually something when, when Kong and Godzilla join for round two. Yeah. And they're destroying all of these random buildings in Hong Kong. Yeah. Which, honestly, it's very similar to what Gareth had did in Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, but, but, but it's much more dynamic. This scene is, is in many ways kind of what you were talking about earlier. It's what we want in a monster film. I agree. Now, I have a question, and I don't have an answer for it. Because mm-hmm. I, the thing that... It, okay, the fight between Godzilla and Kong, I love. And I didn't just love. I This was my favorite monster fight in any movie. Okay. And I had to... But then I said, okay, do I love this fight because it's well done? Or because this is Kong and Godzilla. This is what we've always wanted. This is what I loved in the King Kong versus Godzilla movie, which when I was a kid I loved. Now I realize is a really badly edited foreign film made for English, edited for English audiences that's actually rather tedious. Am I just reacting to the fact that it's that it's these two characters, that these are two monsters we care about? We care about Godzilla. Yeah. You know, if you think back to the 2014 Godzilla that we reviewed, the action, the, the action scenes are done very well. But I was very conscious when I was watching those scenes that, okay, I don't really care about creature he's fighting. But it's Godzilla, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going with it. But now Godzilla's fighting Kong. Yeah. And every, every movement of both of them was something that made me smile. I, I was grinning from ear to ear. There was a moment in watching this movie that there, I, I heard the downshift. I like I I, I heard the transmission <coughs> in which I downshifted from I'm reviewing this film. Yeah. I'm trying to make a, a, a you know a, a, an opinion of all the different elements of the film. Yeah. Then suddenly I just started having fun and I was smiling like I was 10 years old. I think this film does all that stuff really well. Oh, I, I think well here's my answer for the for the question of is it a good fight or is it just a, is it just is the fight able to coast a little bit on our affection for the creatures at the heart of it. I think, hey, I think you're right. We do love these creatures, so the fight would have worked even if it hadn't been as good as it was. I think it's actually a really great fight scene for these monsters. I think it's actually a really, I in all the movies and, and in monster movies generally, I think it might be my favorite fight scene too between between giant monsters. It's better than everything in Pacific Rim. And look, Pacific Rim is a, is a silly movie, but it's a lot of fun. But none of the fight scenes are, and some of them are quite good. None of the fight scenes are as good or as dynamic or as just, just all out fun and creative as this fight is in Godzilla versus Kong. I think 
that its resolve is somewhat clunky. <coughs> part of round two, and um, Kong wins round two. Okay, does I mean let's, let's go, that's let's, not me. Um, I believe Doctor Lin says that. Okay, okay. Because I'm thinking. So my memory of the fight is Godzilla on top of Kong, stomping on his chest that's, and roaring. Okay, okay. That's actually after what Doctor Lin says because Kong okay. actually he um, Kong does very well with Godzilla. Doctor Lin says, I guess round two goes to Kong. Yep. But you know about about three seconds later the fight resumes then Godzilla uh, in the end Godzilla wins on yeah yeah well there's there's a but whoever wins whatever you want to say about round two there are some amazing visual moments my favorite and it was in the trailer and I I, I, I swear I must have watched the trailer 50 times maybe just for the scene when Kong leaps over the skyscrapers again we might have an aircraft carrier problem here could these buildings support the kind of gymnastics that Kong gets no, up to right. but whatever it's fine forget about that and Kong leaps up and Godzilla hits tries to hit Kong with that fire breath but Kong blocks it with that axe and then the camera so you see that it's a nice little moment of slow-mo and then the camera zooms in on Kong's face and you see the reflection of Godzilla and the not the reflection of Godzilla but you see the light of his atomic breath in Kong's eyes and you see kind of the savagery of Kong this is visual drama yeah. I just loved I mean I loved I love that fight I was really sad at the end of the fight round two round three when Godzilla is kind of standing over Kong and Kong almost, kill, almost kills him. Yeah, and Kong submits basically. You know, well, I mean, he's he's dying. Yeah, and that's when they get an artificial heart for him, and they get the giant defibrillators in later. I, but but so that's that's all going on, and that's all great stuff. But this film keeps torturing me with having to go back to the humans, and this is and this is where Team One kind of jumps in. Now, I think we might disagree here. I actually I was not expecting all this. So Godzilla and Kong have an amazing epic fight. Godzilla almost kills Kong. Godzilla starts to leave. Simultaneous to this, Apex is harnessing the power of the Hollow Earth and powering up their... Godzilla. And this leads us to the final act of the film. Take it away, Jason. I think you you saw it more recently, so you, some of this some of this drama is more fresh. Yeah, um, so, um, uh, the, 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 the Apex folks, what we end up discover, what our human heroes discover, I guess it's easy to forget, um, they discover the skull of Hydra, uh, and Apex has created a cybernetic link uh, between what's left of, I guess, Ghidra's brain or whatever's left of, of, of the uh, pathways, and that allows them to um, it, well, okay, now we're getting back to the dumb shit, um, where uh, Sarazawa's son is able to pilot this mechanical version of Godzilla called Mechazilla, which was a, a creature from the Toho films uh, from many years ago. I had, I actually had the plastic figure of Mechagodzilla. I think you did too. Of course I did. Of course you did. They're going to use the energy from the hollow earth and use Ghidra's brain and a human to pilot this Mechagodzilla to destroy Godzilla and rid the earth of Titan. And our heroes, this is barely worth mentioning, but they, you know, they... This is team, team, did we say this was team two or one? Team, team two. two. Team two barely escaped from a, um, uh, a, a test where Mechagodzilla destroys some creatures from the hollow earth they captured they capture all island whatever it was a skull crawler oh that's right yeah i mean it was a skull crawler so obviously a very very capable creature as we saw in in Kongsville island yep and mechagodzilla makes quick work of them though so, film does a very good job of establishing the mechagodzilla very power absolutely mechagodzilla is going to uh ascend into hong kong and engage godzilla that's the primary purpose I, no one seems to care about kong but to destroy godzilla yeah and i i didn't know mechagodzilla was going to be in this movie. okay i 
I, I had not done any research. I had not read anything. Here I am in the theater and there's Mecha Gods. And, and I, I was, I was pretty happy even then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had suspected Mecha Godzilla was going to be in the film. I had followed a lot of the fan chatter and the infinite trailer breakdowns that some fans will do. And there were a lot of people who were convinced that Mecha Godzilla was going to be in the film because of a, a reflection in Godzilla's eyes in one of the, the scenes. And I thought uh, there was going to be a new big bad somewhere because I didn't think that the film would allow us to have Kong and Godzilla be antagonistic towards each other throughout the entire film. I thought that there was going to be some moment where very much like many of the Marvel team-ups that we used to love to read where Spider-Man would end up teaming up with a hero, but he would have a fight with the hero, the other hero at first because there would be some uh, Three's Company-esque misunderstanding between yeah. between the heroes and they would have a fight. And that's what I thought was going to happen with this. I, I So I suspected that there was going to be uh, Mechagodzilla. That didn't stop me from enjoying the reveal. And there was even some some fan service for, for fans of the deep lore. When Mechagodzilla pops up in Hong Kong, uh, ostensibly to protect humans from Titans, but one would have to pull the citizens of Hong Kong to decide how effective Mechagodzilla was at, at defending humanity from Titans. But they have a moment, <laughs> Chase is laughing here, but they have a great moment where they, they match atomic breath. Godzilla loses the fight where it's, you know, Badly. Yes. And did that happen in the original film, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla? They had a laser breath versus light and uh, uh, radioactive breath, and Godzilla lost that fight too. So, so, so I have to, so I have to ask. I mean, so there's more fan service, which I like. I'm just like, so I'm about to go into clever lying mode and say, Max, who? Because like I, I feel like I'm about to win this fight. Uh, the Mechagodzilla stuff. Oh, I liked all the Mechagodzilla stuff except okay. Bob Serizawa and Team Two because that a lot of that bothered me. Um, the the podcaster just uh, saying what was going on with Sarazawa and the skull. Oh, they formed a psionic link. How the fuck do you know that, podcaster? You you are a mid-level IT guy at Apex who had heretofore this adventure never read any file about <laughs> anything that was going on at Apex. For all we know, he handled paychecks with human resources, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he fi he figures out that Sarazawa must be using some kind of psionic link and not just in a cool chair that he made <laughs> to control these creatures. And then some more of our Roland Emmerich comic relief. We've got to stop this because we've got to save Godzilla. Okay, that's fine. And they're doing all this. Well, what do we do? You're the you're the tech expert. And one of them, I don't know if it's Josh or if it's Bernie or if it's uh, Madison, decides to pour a drink into the dashboard. Yeah, uh, Bernie has a flask of, of of some liquor. I'm, I don't know if he says what it was. Yeah. It was the liquor that is what is the, the last drink that his wife ate or something. Something maudlin and stupid. It's very cliched and and he's saving it for his last moment. And he's and he thinks, oh, we're all going to die and he's going to take a drink. And instead, Josh takes it and drink and he pours it and shorts everything out because he can't he can't crack code for yeah. this word. The Mega Godzilla movie, never go full Roland Emmerich. Never! ever do that. Okay, maybe that does something, but the reaction that happens to poor Bob Sarazawa when they do this, and it's not that much liquid. <laughs> Again, Apex doesn't put the money in the R&D as it should. Yeah. There's there's absolutely no redundancies, and so they pour the, the half a sh shot and a half of dead, dead wife's bourbon on the console, and Sarazawa has some kind of crazy meltdown in the, in the, the Mechagodzilla remote console 
cockpit. Yeah. I mean, Mechagodzilla is essentially a drone, you know? Right, and right. But but for some reason, it's also powered by the ghost of Ghidra, is what it seems to me, you know? Which I which could have been cool, which could have been cool, but it's not cool the way they do it. Like, like they, they should have been paying out something in the narrative where Sarazawa is like, I don't know, the, the, the machine is fighting me for some reason. You know? Like Richard Pryor in Superman 3? Something. <laughs> anything. But this film doesn't yeah. even, this film doesn't even rise to the level of that. So we might have a draw on, on this scene. I agree with everything you just said. You just- Okay, podcast over. No, no, you lambasted this scene very well. Right up until, like, I actually bought into the Ghiadra um, taking over. I, I no, no, you just said it could have been done better. It was well enough for me. I, I actually, I liked that part of it. What you just said about all the lead up to it, I agree. Yeah. That was dumb. But, but actually, I was like, oh my God, okay, Ghiadra has finally found the vehicle created by these stupid humans to finally end Godzilla. I, I kind of like that. I, I was fine with that, that segment of it. I just didn't like any of the lead up and it, and it, and it took me a moment, the, the way a bad scene will do this to, to a person, it took me a moment to get back into it. I was cool with like the this little remnant, this remnant of Ghidra's nervous system that had found a way. To, I, I love that, actually. I, I thought that was really cool. That was a great idea. I just didn't like the way, just the kind of the kind of lazy way they did it, you know, and, and without even giving us a hint that that was possible. So no, draw, draw, draw is fair. Draw is fair. That's a good point. But I mean, you do make a good point right there. I mean, there's no build up to it, but I think we've established pretty well that this film doesn't want to linger on any of that. Jen. No, no. The director is a guy who likes a movie just over 90 minutes. Let's just keep it moving. Um, and there's a, there, there's a lot to be said for that approach. I'm not going to knock it, but I think you have to pare down the script a lot because I think the script is really messy. You're right. But this has to be said. Adam Wingard went for pacing mm -hmm. and he took a lot of shortcuts and cut out a lot of characters. As a result, he created a film that has a lot of thin characters. How exactly is that different from the other two Godzilla movies? Or, or faster. This film has better people. Or the other 36 Godzilla films. I don't know that it's different. I don't know that it's actually different. <laughs> When you lay it out like that, I have to kind of concede that 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 thin, which some we've said throughout this series, is that the human characters are pretty thin generally in Godzilla films. My complaint, I guess, becomes that there's a lot of potential in this in this material, and the visuals are so good, the effects acting is so good. I would have liked to have seen the rest of the material rise to it. So Godzilla, returning to the the conclusion of the film, Godzilla's taken a beating. Apex is about to become the apex. Yeah. Now there's now doesn't doesn't Walt have a moment with Team 1 Team 2 I'm sorry Team 2 where he basically in the film uh, The Incredibles the villain monologues and Walt yeah. Walt I don't mind I mean, that's not a criticism of this moment in the film villain's gonna monologue and if it's done well it's kind of fun what did you think of Simmons monologuing I have to say I, I did not mind his character yeah okay so let me channel my James Bond fandom since you're the Godzilla the resident Godzilla expert I'll channel Bond villain expertise just bear Barely above average. Okay. He, he he's he's okay, but but kind of just generic. I, I I had this plan, and and you all are kind of under my thumb, and and you guys don't know what's going on. Oh, I'm dead. I don't want to I don't want to cite him for being a bad villain. Yeah, not a great villain. Well, so so as with everything in the human side of this movie, with the exception of maybe Gia and Eileen, everybody else is pretty thin in the movie, and he's he's no exception. But a lot of times the film gets away with things 
Simons because the actors are very good. Yeah. Whoever's playing Walt Simons is very good. I mean, Bashir. He's very fun chewing through this scenery. He's making the most of thin material, I thought. And, you know, what I got was that humans need to be on top. The hollow earth energy will make us be on top. And, I mean, he, he seemed like a guy, I, I kind of liked the idea that his character was a little myth that humans were not the end-all be-all of the of the planet anymore with the with the with the reveal of the titans which is kind of new for the series yeah that does need to be said this is the first time that we actually have a villain who's like well fuck these things exactly <laughs> I mean, exactly exactly <laughs> and that's kind of a pleasant i mean it, it, it's it's not an unreasonable villain you know and so it's not it's not something that is outside of the realm of possibility you, you yeah sense. yeah like in fact up until this movie humanity has been phenomenally restrained mm -hmm. like you you cited in the earlier films just how calm and logical the U.S. military has been in this yeah. film. They don't proactively just say, well, we're going to err on the side of caution and try and kill all these things. Right. You know, there are several times where the U.S. military is like, well, we're, we're happy to try something with good data behind it. So, but this guy, I, I kind of liked his, like you said, Fuck he's, got a great, he's got a great plan. Yeah. And he's got the tool until the very moment that he loses control of it. Now, and, and which, now see, again, I'll defend it again. Hydra, I mean, except for one fight in Godzilla King of the Monsters, Hydra is a very unpredictable character because again, invasive species yeah. from somewhere else. And um, so I kind of like that Hydra was even a Hydra's skull and neural pathways were also a little too unpredictable even yeah. these people who've been studying these types. I, I, I kind of like... Well, I, I, I don't disagree. And so basically what, what Apex has unwittingly done is given... They've reincarnated Ghidra in a more powerful Back form. Godzilla. Yeah, in, in a form that can actually beat Godzilla. Yeah. And this is the first moment where I get a sense that we really feel some empathy for Godzilla because Godzilla is about to lose the number one status. Yeah, so look, till we, till we, till we have to apply the break and I have to ask you, this is the climactic action beat of the movie. Mm -hmm. As a viewer, you come in, okay, it's Hong Godzilla versus Godzilla. That's what this movie's all about. Yeah, yeah. But now here we are, the fight has been interrupted by this villain that I didn't expect. I mean, okay, you expected Mechagodzilla, but here's this Mechagodzilla that is actually dominating Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, overwhelming. So we set up this final dramatic action scene. What do you think of this final dramatic action? I think I enjoy the fight. I enjoy the fight. I think it's a little too brief, but I get it because we're 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 fast winding up to, towards the credits. I think some of it's kind of thin. Again, I think I think that some of the emotional justification doesn't quite work. Gia convinces Kong after the defibrillation and whatever it is that they do to Kong. Which we didn't even talk about, but yeah, just, yeah. But but for some reason, Gia convinces Kong that Kong recovers. I don't remember exactly why, but but Gia says to Kong, I, and maybe it's because she can feel Godzilla's pain. We get a sense that, and I'm, I'm doing work for the script that it doesn't really do. Gia senses Godzilla's in trouble and Gia senses that, that Kong has to go help Godzilla. And maybe it's because she realizes, and we, like I said, not a lot of this is fleshed out. It's not Mechagodzilla, it's Ghidra. And Ghidra is now somehow connected with the the power of the Hollow Earth, and it's a, it's a threat to everyone. But Gia convinces Kong to help Godzilla, save Godzilla, the guy who just about erased him. So, um, so a 
Adrian and Mickey are, are telling me to get up and hit you, and and I am going to do that, and I'm going to I'm going to bring this movie to the finish line and defend it because actually I think this is done very well. Okay. So we need to back up a little bit. Long is dying. Yep. His heart is stopping. Gia senses this, so I guess that she's you know her, her sense of touch is you know the ability to hear vibrations more powerful than we even know. She knows that Kong's heart is stopping. So this is the payoff that I was talking about, which that that scene earlier in the movie that annoyed you, it annoyed me. You know, he's a coward. Uh, in, in which um, um, Dr. Lind goes to uh, to Gia and he signs to her that she's brave, but he actually signs that she's a coward. And <laughs> and uh, and she's so are you. And he's like, well, both of us, you know. But then Dr. Lind has his moment in which he uses the the, uh, the HEAV device, right? Yeah, to de to defibrillate defibrillate to start Kong's. Skin. Now and, this is now now pause for a second. This is Wingard leaning into King Kong Lives. So uh, that's a compliment, though. I, I don't. I don't disagree. I don't you're disagree. You're complimenting the film. Be careful. I'm sorry. Yeah. So um, no, no, you're quite right. Okay. The '76 King Kong ends with the, you know, the you know the heart kind of ending. Yes. Yes. And I think King Kong Lives begins with kind of that starting again. That's all really good stuff. And I think the film needs to be given credit for that. That like, hey, let's lean into this film from 1986 that no one watched, except for you and me. So Kong awakens and then Gia tells him that Godzilla is not his enemy. Yes. You know, that, that, that he, that, you know, that he's really your friend and he needs help. And, and Kong trusts her. He's trusted her to this point. She's not led him wrong. And he's, and he's going to finish the job. Godzilla's about to be killed. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Kong intervenes. He's got the ax. Kong cannot finish Mecha Godzilla either, but Godzilla chooses to help Kong by using his radioactive breath to power the ax. Yeah. And then Kong is pretty much, I have the power. Uh, Kong becomes He-Man, finishes the job. Yes. And, and now it has to be said, so in the final analysis, Kong, Godzilla versus Kong, who wins? Godzilla. Yeah. Godzilla defeats Kong. He wins two out of three. Yeah. Ends on point. But who saves the day? Kong. Kong saves the day with Godzilla's help. The two of them join. They do not, they, they do not save Hong Kong, however. No. <laughs> Hong Kong's already gone. <laughs> Haven't you been paying attention? All these buildings just evaporating and... It, it, there are a few left, wise. but there, there are a few buildings left standing when when Kong and Godzilla team up against Mechagodzilla. They don't stand for much longer after that. But no, I don't. We mentioned, but you know, the villain's already dead because uh, Mechagodzilla killed him. So the villains are all gone, and we kind of have a an, an, a meeting of the minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between Godzilla and Kong, and uh, which I think is the appropriate way in this film. Yeah, yeah. I like the close of the film. I, I like I said, I, I really like it when they team up. Still some tension at the end of it afterwards. They kind of have a little moment where they give each other a look and Godzilla gives a roar and Kong gives a roar, I think, and then they they separate. No, I liked liked all of that. So no, I don't I don't the monster stuff's great. And I tell you what, I was so jazzed when Godzilla powered the axe. Oh, that, that great moment. Great and and it goes back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier where we like to see Godzilla demonstrating how smart he is. And he powered up a weapon that probably would have been used against his people. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that that's a great character moment. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. And then, and then, and then the axe is pretty effective against Mechagodzilla. <laughs> uh, uh, not pretty. It, it decides. <laughs> yes, may 
maybe the next film will be like the, the literal ghost of Ghidorah fighting <laughs> Godzilla and Kong. I suppose for me, and this is before we get to the verdict or any of this other stuff, for me, I, I wanted somewhat of a pared down script and I kind of wanted some fan service that leaned into the original Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla because I suspected Mechagodzilla was going to be in it. In the original Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, Mechagodzilla is a kind of ruse. Godzilla in the beginning of the film is terrorizing everything and destroying cities, destroying this, destroying that, attacking humans, and nobody can figure out why. And then, as Mechagodzilla is destroying some oil field or something, I can't remember exactly what, on the uh, the other side of the ruins that Mechagodzilla has created, it's not Mechagodzilla, though. It looks like, I, 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 let me back up, Godzilla is doing all these things. Maybe I said that, but Godzilla is destroying everything and no one knows why. And then on the other side of this oil field of, of flames and ruin is another Godzilla. And they have a fight and the humans are all like, why are there two Godzillas? Right. And in the course of the fight, it's revealed that one of them isn't real. It's Mechagodzilla with this kind of, but basically what we have is a giant Godzilla cyborg and Godzilla yeah. arrives because he doesn't like what's going on. I thought what was going to happen was that was how the bad guys were going to turn the world against Godzilla. Right. And I thought that would have been a much simpler script and more compelling. You could have had this Mechagodzilla, God, this Godzilla cyborg uh, attacking Kong, attacking humans, and, and then that causes Godzilla to come up out of whatever he's doing. But that's, but that's already been done. It has been, but only like me and 10 other people know that, you know? <laughs> and so... Yeah, and, and actually, I've never seen that movie, so the only reason I know that is because you told me that when we were in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of friends, audience, who weren't as into Godzilla as I was, so I would bore the shit out of them with Godzilla plot lines. So that's the that's the close of the movie. Do we hit the verdict now? Is there anything... You, let, let's talk about the score. Oh, uh, so I actually today, while working remotely, listened to it. I couldn't do it during my grilling like I usually do. Mm -hmm. um, so um, uh, the the score uh, for Godzilla uh, versus Kong was done by uh, Tom Holkin, okay. who uh, I did read, he um, was a big Godzilla fan and he had actually played around with doing a Godzilla score long before he was asked to do this. Uh -huh. And Adam Wingard came along and, and uh, you know, hired him for the job. And unlike the previous film, which we did discuss when we did Godzilla uh, King of the Monsters, unlike the previous film, he did not want to lean too far into the original score of Godzilla King of the Monsters, the 1954 film. Okay. Um, so um, I think he crafted a very unique score okay. that I really enjoyed listening to. Um, not not just as a character, mm -hmm. but actually just, just listening to it today. There were a lot of sounds that I liked. And one of the things that stuck out to me and, and what my ears picked out is that there were kind of three distinct scores. There was a Godzilla score that was similar but not identical to the original Godzilla score that was done years ago. Okay. The Godzilla King of the Monsters dated uh, quite, quite completely. Yeah, yeah. There was a King Kong score that was a bit of an echo of Kong's All Island. And then there was this techno score that sounded a lot like what Daft Punk did for Tron Legacy. Okay. Kind of the apex light mode. Okay. I loved all three. Okay. I, I loved the score quite a lot. I would say that I would listen to this score just as background independent of narrative and okay. that's rare for a score for me so so a quick shout out to this series which
which is kind of rare. The music in this series has been uniformly excellent. I don't think we've said anything bad about music. I, I can't think of anything bad to say. This The score, to me, I didn't get to see as much as I usually do for one of the films that we do. The score seemed quite effective to me, so I didn't have it. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to listen to it. I, I, I don't listen to the scores as intently as Jason does. Jason does a, it's something that he does, and he does it really well. And uh, in these films, the scores have been so well wed to the visual yes. material. But yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you kind of broke it down for us there. There is a final scene. We discover that Monarch has created a base in the Savage Land, in the, uh, in the Hollow Earth, and Kong is now living there, and they're monitoring him. Yeah. I mean, there's no romantic payoff still. No good. No, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Eileen and Nathan are, are friends again, and they're, they're working together. And, the, and no, I agree. I, I think that's all good. But they're observing Kong in his habitat. And then we, uh, we go to All I Need is the Air That I Breathe by the Holly. Okay. Which is a song that everybody knows. But I think I appreciated for the first time. I actually started listening to it and reading about the composition of it. Mm -hmm. I like when the music of the ending credits can kind of give you a, a fitting emotional ending to what you just saw. For some reason, this worked for me. You know, you know, we see Kong kind of in his new habitat and you hear this, this song and then and then the credits begin to roll and the song continues. And I just really enjoyed I only read today that Eric Clapton, great Eric Clapton, uh, slow hand, felt that the first blues notes at the beginning of this song are the perfect blues. Okay. He said it back then. He may have been high as high knowing Eric Clapton yeah. um, at the time, but, you know, in the late 60s or early 70s, he was talking about it. I liked the credits. They It was kind of a great finish a finish for me. Yeah, yeah. I liked how things wrapped up. This is a movie that I really liked second, the second half of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, was there an after credit scene? I don't remember. There was not. I okay. That gives them some freedom to operate in the next film. But, but they had freedom in the uh, from Godzilla King of the Monsters because they didn't pay much attention to their after credit scene. And now... The verdict. I'm a Godzilla guy, and I have to say that this film was a bit of a bumpy ride for me. It wasn't as bumpy when I was watching, but the more I sat and thought about the film, and especially the human elements, the more problems I seem to have with the film. Because I, I, I think that a lot of the human story elements, especially in what we call, what Jason and I were calling Team 2 for most of the film, they're very much like a Roland Emmerich film, and they're very bad, I found to be. They, they didn't really sing to me. The monster stuff is great, all of it. But is that enough to get you over the finish line? I don't know. I will watch this movie again. I'm sure that I will. I will probably buy it when it is available. But it's not my favorite of this series. But Jason has won me over a little bit to some of his points. I think that Jason has won me over to the idea that it's probably a, a great popcorn film. But but there, there's a lot of fun to be had in it. Is this a film for everyone? I don't necessarily think so. If you are a giant monster person who likes those kinds of films, then I think yes. If not, Jason used the term monster curious. I don't know if this is the entry point. I don't know. Maybe it is. But it's not the best in the series. And I guess that's where I'll leave it. Jason, to you. My verdict will be kind of a response to yours because I I agree with everything that you said. I just think that my my response is just a little different. I I, I think that I my experience of this move, despite all of the criticisms, I led with this, you know uh, critique of the writing style, the, the kind of you know seven hundred people in a room coming up with ideas rather than you know, a, a focused writer trying to spend time to create characters that the audience cares about. This movie doesn't care about any of that, and it, it's it's late 
blatantly obvious, but unlike the previous film series, and maybe even unlike the first film, which I recommended with qualification, this film does pull out all the stuff, and it does give us great vistas of imagining. We see, we see the, the hollow earth, the kind of undiscovered country, where we have all these creatures that even Kong has not seen, and now he has fight. And then we see our two favorite monsters battle together. And is the battle worth the price of admission? Absolutely. It, it is. This is a movie that you watch as a fan. There is no doubt, no doubt, that uh, the character flaws of earlier film in the legendary MonsterVerse are absolutely fully in demonstration here. Maybe maybe the worst character development in the series, maybe. But I think that the effects, works of imagination, the fact that Godzilla and Kong are fighting each other is the best monster character work. In the fact the score, wonderful and so fun. You could listen to it separate from the film and not even be thinking about the characters and just think that this is really good music. There's just so much about this movie that is fun and creative and imaginative. And I allowed myself just be a fan. And I don't think that I was, in case you're wondering, I don't think I was influenced by the pandemic fact that I haven't in theater. I really feel like, I really felt transported back to 1970, 1965, to the creature features that Max was talking about. Or the Ray Harry, the late Ray Harry Housies, the late 70s. I love. This movie took me to places that I didn't expect. And when and when it took me to them, I liked what it did. And I'm aware of all its flaws. I know that on future watches, I'll probably be like, oh, maybe I'd like to re-record that podcast. But no, I think you folks, if you watch it and you're in the right frame of mind, I think you'll have a good time too. Go ahead and see this movie. It's not the best movie in the series. I think uh, it does not surpass on the line. I think that is still the, the best film of this series. This is number two for me. Fair enough. But I also want to say, I think this movie does pacing as well as Kong Skull Island, which the other two Godzilla movies don't. That, that's, I think that's fair. All right, guys, that's the verdict. Jason, what, what are we doing next? We are actually going to dip our toes into the water of martial arts films. Are we? We are going to enter the world of Bruce Lee. We are going to be doing Bruce Lee's final film, Enter the Dragon, probably the most important, definitely the most important martial arts film ever made, and probably one of the most important action films. There you have it, guys. So, tune in for that. Share us with your friends, share us on social media, uh, share us on Facebook, the Twitters, the Instagrams. Jason, anything people need to watch before we go? Anything you've seen lately other than this film? Tons of things, but nothing I can think of right now. All right, all right. Folks, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. When you make a Godzilla movie, never go full Roland Emmerich. Never!